All right, good morning. Good morning. Uh, and so, uh, as Reverend Brad uh, just said, my name is Jordan Washington, and uh, me and my wife attend Central Hope Church in, in Little Rock, Arkansas. Unfortunately, she couldn't make it with me this morning uh, because she is the children's director of our church, so she had to fill in for me uh, this morning. So, uh, she, she is definitely missed, and, and she sends uh, her regards to you guys. Um, and so, ju- just so you guys have a picture of where we're going, we're going to be in uh, John chapter 3, we're going to be dealing with verses 1 uh, through 9. Um, and so just um, a little bit about the, the background and, and kind of the, the idea uh, behind this sermon is, um, I don't know if you guys, uh, you, might, you might be something uh, like me, but uh, I watch the news uh, pre- pretty regularly, uh, which that's something that I blame on, on my mom, uh, because when I was younger, Saturday, night, Saturday mornings were for me, devoted to, to watching cartoons, and she would always come in and spend, it wasn't a long time, but 15 to 20 minutes watching the news. And she would always tell me, uh, Jordan, you need to know what's happening in the world. Uh, and that's something that I didn't pay any attention to until I uh, became an adult uh, myself. And so now uh, I watch the news. And if you're anything else, uh, if you're something else like me, uh, the news can oftentimes be a place uh, where you find the most discouragement, uh, where you become uh, depressed after watching it. And you might even question, uh, God, what is going on? What, what is, is happening? Uh, and so I, I made another fatal mistake earlier this year, uh, and I got a Twitter account. Um, if you know anything about Twitter, it's not a good place for anybody to reside, especially not for any extended period of time. Uh, but I got a Twitter uh, with the intended purpose of keeping up with what's happening, uh, particularly in the United States. Um, and one of the things that I've noticed, um, and not, not just from the culture at large, but from people who profess to believe in God, is that we have forgotten something. Uh, when, I, when I'm on Twitter and when I'm reading responses from uh, pastors and, and laymen alike, one thing that seems to be forgotten is that the church is God's work, right? We, we, we seem to have this idea in American culture, and again, not at the culture in large, but even within the church, that the church is man's project, right? For this, for this thing to work, we have to manufacture uh, the means to get the results, and we forget that the church is God's work. And so this morning, we're actually going to be talking about the forgotten God. And, and by the forgotten God, I mean uh, the Holy Spirit, the, the third person of the Trinity. And so many professing Christians these days do not speak uh, about the power of God, generally speaking, because it's foreign to them. The power of God has almost totally been taken out of much of American ministry. It is believed now that if we're going to reach the lost, it's about the lights, the production, the performance, having the greatest speakers occupy the stage and even the most attractive church members on church websites. It is about making sure that the watching world thinks that the church is modern, not archaic, progressive, not traditional, and relevant not outdated. 
In many ways, the supernatural aspects of the Christian religion have all but been forgotten. The success of the mission of the church is contingent upon how fun and in tune with the culture we can make the church appear to be. I've even heard some make the claim that if America gets taken over by secularism, then the gospel will not advance in other parts of the world. That's a fascinating claim. Because if you look at at what's happening in other parts of the world, we'll take China, for example, uh, a place where Christians are are severely persecuted. Uh, What is happening? The Chinese church is growing. Excuse me. You check other parts of the world, uh, take Afghanistan, for example. Uh, You see that the gospel is triumphant in these parts of the world completely external of all the luxuries that we enjoy here in America. And so then that should beg the question, right, is if the gospel can advance without all of these luxuries, then what is it that builds the church, right? That should be the question that gets asked. But again, many act as if America is God's plan A for accomplishing his global purposes. But as we will see, the mission of of, uh, God is the church and is completed and successful because of the power of God. Now, as a preface, uh, I'm sure that everyone has some notion uh, of who the Holy Spirit is. Uh, He, in particular, has gotten a lot of press, good and bad, over uh, the last 30 years through the advancement of technology, streaming services, and things like that, there are tons of resources, again, both good and bad, uh, that people can acquire. But just so you have a snapshot of some of the more popular notions of the Holy Spirit that are, that are out there, again, in the, in the Christian church, uh, the Holy Spirit, uh, much like other members of the Trinity, are treated like uh, genie from Aladdin. Right, a, a force that exists to do the bidding of men, and it that exists to aid men in his endeavors and dreams. And so you might have heard of popular teachers like Jen Johnson from Bethel Church have said outright that they view the Holy Spirit as genie from Aladdin. And if you're familiar with Aladdin, genie was played by Robin Williams. Uh, he was a mystical force that was trapped in a bottle that upon being released, he was then enslaved to the person who released him, right? This is how Jen Johnson says she views the Holy Spirit. And other similar teachers like Bill Johnson and Benny Hinn and Stephen Furtick and Michael Todd and Michael Koulianos and Kenneth Copeland and Todd White all have the same view of the Spirit. And again, I wish I could say that this view of the Holy Spirit was confined to just these few individuals. Um, but through uh, continued conversations with people who are uh, around my age and, and younger, uh, these notions and ideas of the Holy Spirit are far more pervasive uh, than I think we know. But these are obvious examples of bad theology uh, of the Spirit. Um, and one thing that is a little more subtle even um, in views Uh, about God and about how he dwells with his people can oftentimes even be found in the language used by worship pastors, 
uh, around American culture. There's a continual plea for God to be near to his people, right? There's this invitation to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come and be in this place. But again, the Bible tells us that God is Emmanuel. That means that he is with us and that all true believers are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. You do not have to beg God to be near to you because he has promised that he will be near to you. But again, these ideas about the Holy Spirit, again, these these views are a lot more similar to the ideas of pagan idol worship than the God of the Bible. This idea that we have to conjure up God to do something on our behalf by repetitive pleas to him. Again, is foreign to the God of the scriptures. And yet this type of phraseology is present across America from Sunday to Sunday. And to really double down on the insult paid to the Holy Spirit, his work in the salvation of man has been minimized, if not outright discarded. Again, you you don't have to look far to see this, but you can even consider uh, comments that are made to youth kids who just recently were baptized. Uh, People will make statements like, congratulations, right? Great job. Uh, The best decision that you could have made, right? All statements that you would make to someone who just earned their high school diploma or just earned a scholarship to university or just earned a college degree or just earned a master's degree or just earned a promotion at their job. You see the point that these are statements that you would make to someone who earned something, not someone who has been rescued from something. But again, this is the idea that is pervasive throughout Christendom in America. And it is felt both in big youth rallies and young adult gatherings. However, the Bible paints us a very clear picture of the divine person of the Holy Spirit. The Bible not only mentions him, but gives him a premier spot alongside the Father and the Son in the unfolding drama that is redemptive history. And so this morning, we're not going to spend our time talking about spiritual gifts. Sorry if, you, if that's what you're, what you're looking for. Uh, but what we are going to talk about this morning is the nature of the Holy Spirit's work in the salvation of sinners. This monergistic work uh, that takes place in the human man. And the reason this is so vitally important is for one simple reason, uh, that if we do not have a biblical understanding of how men are saved, we will manufacture ways for them to be saved. If we wrongly diagnose the disease that plagues our fallen world, then we will provide wrong solutions. We will invent ways to make things as we think they ought to be. A modern day example of this is uh, the sinner's prayer. Because of wrong ideas about Romans 10.9, right, we, we tend to think that Romans 10.9 is about someone walking down a church aisle in front of their loving family and a bunch of nice Christian people and saying that they believe in Jesus. 
when in fact the context of Romans 10.9 is Christians who will absolutely face death for saying that Jesus is Lord. But these types of methodologies are employed all across American churches. And while people are saved in spite of such methods, they're certainly not saved because of them. And we do great harm not only to the thriving and the flourishing of the Christian church by having wrong ideas of how men are saved. We also do damage to the individual themselves by assuring them that they are something that they actually are not. And so if you will turn with me to John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, and we will continue through verse 9. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb. And be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And so when I first began doing ministry uh, at the university I went to, Henderson State University in Arkadelphia, it's a really, really small, small town that somehow manages to have two colleges. Uh, But when I first started doing ministry on Henderson State's campus, uh, I once came to a friend very discouraged. Uh, And the reason for uh, my discouragement uh, was because I'd been doing evangelism on Henderson State's campus mightily. Right. And in my mind, at least. Right. I was I was out there sharing the gospel uh, with eloquence uh, and being very articulate, covering all the bases with uh, my peers uh, about the nature of the gospel and how they can be reconciled to God. Uh, And instead of being met with uh, repentance, delight and faith, as I thought would happen, uh, I was oftentimes met with uh, disregard and indifference. And so I came to my friend and I just asked him, I said, why do people seem to be so indifferent uh, to the gospel? Right. What what is it uh, about the gospel that just doesn't they they don't care at all? Because in my mind, I, I could not understand at the time. Right. I was I'm still pretty young now, at least I like to think. Uh, and. I was younger then. I was about 22 uh, at the time, and I, and I could not understand uh, why men did not delight in the gospel that I had delighted in when I was converted earlier that year. Right? I, I couldn't understand why Ephesians 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ, rang so true to my ears and heart and was a delight to my soul but was completely worthless to other people. I I could not understand 
how that was the case. Unfortunately, my friend never answered my question. He just looked at me and said, that's a good question. <laughs> and so he set me on a path. And so he, he was much wiser than I was, even though he's a couple years old, older than me. Uh, but he set me on a path uh, to investigate the reason uh, for my question. And so uh, the reason for that question, again, we will see it is found in the work of the Holy Spirit. But Romans 3.11 says that there is no one who understands, no one who seeks after God. The Apostle Paul in his first letter to the Corinthians wrote, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. And then he goes on to say, For indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. And the reality is, is today, we are no different. We ask to see wondrous signs and we seek after vain philosophies and we call ourselves wise. Martin Hengel has a, a little volume called Crucifixion. Uh, and through re historical research, he further expounds the meaning of crucifixion in the Greek-speaking world. And so he writes, For men of the ancient world, Greeks, Romans, barbarians, and Jews... The cross was not a matter of indifference, just as just any kind of death. It was an utterly offensive affair, obscene in the original sense of the word. The Christian was seen as, perni as pernicious, the Christian faith, excuse me, was seen as pernicious superstition, the worship of a criminal and his cross. Not much has changed. From the time of the Romans until now, the folly of the cross remains. And the amount of scoffers are endless in this world. But again, the glaring question remains. How does anyone come to see the cross as magnificent? How do any of us come to know the cross as the wisdom of God? How does a person come to see in the page of scriptures that this Jew... Hanging on a tree is God incarnate. You see, crucifixion actually is not in itself unique. Uh, it was a criminal's death. And it's not even unique to religious beliefs either. Right. And so if you're somewhat familiar with with Greek uh, culture. You understand, you, you know, that they're they were polytheists. Right. So they believed in in many gods and. One of the things that they even believed about their gods was that Greek gods would actually crucify one another to show the shame and embarrass their fellow gods. And so crucifixion is actually not even something that's unique to the Christian faith. And so how is it that a person comes to see the beauty of the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ for what it is? And we see our answer is found here in our text. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus and immediately says uh, what many of us probably feel like is a pretty valid address, right? He calls him rabbi, which means teacher, a very profound and noble title that you could have been given in the first century, especially in Jewish culture. Uh, but immediately, Jesus responds by re revealing to Nicodemus that he has a need, 
a need that Nicodemus doesn't know that he has. And so Jesus immediately responds to Nicodemus by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus thought he was making an accurate assessment of Jesus. Right? He says, uh, he calls him rabbi. Uh, he says that we know that you are from God because no one can perform the miracles that you do unless he is from God. And so in Nicodemus's mind, he was making a very accurate and valid assessment of Jesus. When in fact, he had totally missed Jesus's true identity and purpose. And this brings us to the first dilemma of every man, woman, and child that has ever been born, is born now, and whoever will be born, is that we are born into this world completely blind to the kingdom of God. We are born once, and we must be born again. If we are not born again, we cannot even see the kingdom of God. And like Nicodemus, we might even make some true statements about Jesus, right? So Nicodemus made an accurate assessment when he says that we know that you are from God, right? That was very true on Nicodemus's part. And yet Nicodemus still missed the true identity of Jesus. People who are born into this world are completely, uh, not completely unaware in the sense that they don't know that God exists, but they are unaware in the sense that they cannot comprehend how the cross of Jesus Christ reconciles fallen man to God. And that through the cross, the kingdom of God has been ushered in in real time and real space. Just as Nicodemus had not yet seen the reality that Jesus is more than a great teacher doing miracles, so too many in our world are blind to the truth of who Jesus is. Jesus here is telling Nicodemus of his need. Nicodemus needs to see because he can't. Nicodemus needs to be born again. Nicodemus then responds the way most of us would probably re respond today. How can a man be born when he is old? Again, seems like a valid question. But Jesus doesn't flinch, but doubles down on his originally startling statement. Truly, truly, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So not only can a person not see the kingdom of God unless they are born again, they can't enter into the kingdom of God unless they are born again. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said you must be born again. You see, the Bible is very clear that natural man has a dilemma. Entrance into the kingdom of God cannot be manipulated by anyone. Salvation cannot be popishly bestowed upon our friends, our loved ones. It cannot be manipulated by the preacher, the youth counselor, the campus minister, nor the camp counselor. Salvation is a sovereign work of God the Holy Spirit. The greatest miracle known to man is not someone being healed of cancer, even though that is quite miraculous indeed. The greatest miracle is that anyone born in this world, born at enmity with God, walking in darkness, unable to find his way, comes to know Jesus. 
And I don't mean know Jesus in an abstract way. I mean know Jesus the same way many people know their Enneagram. Right? That's what I mean by knowing Jesus. This is a sovereign work of God, the Holy Spirit. The Westminster Shorter Catechism question number 31 says this. The work of God's spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds to the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills, he does persuade us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. You see, many people are willing to admit that they are broken and make mistakes. Parents, you you might remember the days of trying to teach your kids to apologize, right? And once your child figured out that the sooner I apologize, the faster I can go back and play and do the thing that I want to do, boy, how quickly were they willing to give up that apology so that they can go do what they were doing originally? This is the condition of the natural man. We are very quick to apologize when we think that it'll keep us from suffering some consequence. When it keeps us from avoiding some type of punishment. That is the natural man. It is not so with the man under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is actually found uh, in Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. And so you might be familiar with this story as well. But Jesus and his disciples are dining at a Pharisee's house. And they enter in, uh, and the woman brings her alabaster vial and is pouring it on Jesus' feet. She's weeping uh, on his feet, and she's wiping his feet with her hair. And the Pharisees begin to grumble and mumble amongst themselves. And it says, if this guy was really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman that is that's touching him. And so then Jesus leans over to Peter and says, Peter, do you, do you see this woman? And he says, yes. And then he tells him a story that there was a moneylender who had two debtors, right? One who owed him and just going to paraphrase here, but one who owed him a little bit of money and one who owed him a great bit more. And what the moneylender did was that he forgave both of them of their debts. And so then Jesus asked him, which one of them do you think loves the moneylender more? And Peter said, probably the guy who owed him the bigger debt. And Jesus said, you have answered rightly. This woman from the moment that I came in has not ceased from wiping my feet with her tears and anointing my head with oil. That woman is a beautiful picture of what a convicted sinner feels when they're coming to Christ. Not just to avoid the punishment of hell, but out of love for the Savior, for what he has done. They respond in remorse for the things that they have done. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Unlike the natural man who offers up an apology to avoid some consequence, 
the man under the conviction of the Holy Spirit offers up an apology because he feels remorse for what he's done. He understands what he deserves from God. And in light of that, he understands what he has freely been given by God. And out of that love and admiration for God's grace and mercy, he responds. Another one of my favorite books of of all time is probably The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. And if you're familiar with this story, you know that it opens up with a with a character whose name is starts out his name is is Pilgrim, and then his name quickly turn, changes to to Christian. But how the story begins is Christian is reading this book, and as he's reading this book, he begins to feel a great sense of distress, uh, so much distress that in fact he is uh, disheveled at dinner with his wife and his kids, and he tries to sleep it off and wake up the next morning and thinks that he'll feel better, and he doesn't because his burden is heavy upon his back. And then he meets a man whose name is Evangelist, and Evangelist begins to talk to him, and he tells him which direction he should go to be relieved of his burden. And immediately... Christian breaks out in a sprint, running from his home. It's actually a really powerful picture because what happens next is that Christian's wife and his kids all start running after him as well. Except for they're not running after him because they're following him. They're running after him to convince him to come back to the city of destruction. And what Christian does uh, is profound But he puts his fingers to his ears and he says to himself, life, life, eternal life. And he continues to run. He flees from the city of destruction. Again, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. The natural man does not feel the weight of his sin. The natural man does not see his misery. The natural man does not see that he has a problem that needs to be fixed. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, by God's grace, all of us who are born naturally dull of mind, inaffectionate in heart when it comes to God and his many mercies that he bestows upon us, we are changed because of the Holy Spirit. And we see our need. We see our poverty. And we break out into a sprint. After the one person who can remedy our ailments. After the one person who can fix the thing that ails us most. Which is not our financial situation, although I I understand that. Uh, It's not our lack of education, even though that can bring forth its own issues. Uh, It's not our family strife, even though those can be burdensome. The most important need that every man, woman, and child will ever have is a need to be reconciled to God. God has provided the solution 
for our remedy. But men can't see it. You must be born again or you can't even see the kingdom of God. And praise be to God for his sovereign work. Because if any of us were left to our own devices, we would never even accept the remedy even if we knew that it would be the thing that would help us. But because of God's grace and because of the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit, men are made new. They not only see their ailment, but they seek out the solution as well. And this is a great comfort to us, both as individuals, as, as we think and look over our own lives. And again, I'm, I'm not even, uh, I don't consider myself at least, I, I guess the kids that I teach, they consider to me be ancient. Uh, but so, so funny story, I told, I told my girls that I was born in 91 and they were like, you were born in 91? It's like, yeah, a century ago, right? Thanks be to God for the Holy Spirit. Even as I look back over my own life, and which hadn't even been very long, I can see the hand of God in, in my own life. The mistakes that, that I have made. The shortcomings that are there. And the reality that I would have never have chosen this path for myself. I would have never come to Jesus. Never. Because I would have always been chasing after something else that I thought was going to be the solution to my problem. As it is with every natural man. They will always pick something else over Jesus. But thanks be to God for the Holy Spirit. This is great encouragement to us as we evangelize as well, as we seek to be faithful in a shifting culture. We can rest our heads at night knowing that the results are not up to us. And thanks be to God that they're not. The results are up to God. The church is God's work. And there's one thing that he has certainly promised. Well, he's promised many things. But there's one thing that he has definitely promised concerning the church. And Jesus says that I will build my church. So brothers and sisters, be encouraged that you do not have to build the church. The church is God's work. And he has promised us that he will build his church. And we can rest in our God who is faithful to fulfill all the promises that he has given to us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come first and foremost to thank you for who you are, that even if you had not done anything for us or on our behalf, you would still be worthy of our praise and thanksgiving. But we do want to thank you immensely for what you have done for us, not only in providing a Savior for us, but also by giving us your spirit, that we would recognize our need and that we would seek the solution. That we would not continue to turn to the things of this world to find our satisfaction, but that we would turn and come to you. 
We give thanks to you that you have promised that you will build your church, that we can rest our heads knowing that you are sovereign and that you will accomplish your purposes here in the world. We love you and we give thanks to you for who you are and what you've done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.